This is The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. I'm Josh Morgan. I'm a sociologist and a writer, and I use this podcast to share stories from people who are making a difference in the lives of others, people like you and me. Doug Amar is the executive director of the Georgia Justice Project, a nonprofit organization that provides legal and social support for underserved individuals in Atlanta, Georgia. The staff offers free or low-cost legal representation for clients in need, and they provide support through services like social work, job placement, and community events for those affected the most by the criminal justice system. Their goal is to help people find productive places in society in ways that otherwise might not exist for them. They're also advocates for more compassionate criminal policies in the state of Georgia and throughout the southeastern United States. And they played a major role in Georgia becoming the first southern state to pass something called Ban the Box, which helps those convicted of felonies find employment. I'll let Doug explain what Ban the Box means later on. But all these things make the Georgia Justice Project unique because its members are committed to guiding these people, even after their court cases have ended and they've exited the criminal justice system. I talked with Doug about these topics back in December and about what motivates his commitment to those that he serves. And I'll play our conversation in a moment. There's a lot I could discuss about the criminal justice system in the United States, but Doug does an excellent job of covering the major points on the compassionate side of the debate. I don't want to repeat what you'll hear him say, but many of the laws and policies that are enforced around the country are ruining people's lives. Legally, felons in the U.S. can't vote, they can't own guns, they can't travel to some countries, and most importantly, their access to services and benefits like loans, food stamps, and financial aid for college becomes limited. They can also be discriminated against in many areas legally when applying for housing and for jobs. So all of that can hinder their ability to support families and better themselves overall. But the good news is that Americans in many parts of the country have begun reconsidering the intent of criminal justice, especially in the deeply conservative state of Georgia. Doug and the Georgia Justice Project embody the restorative approach to justice, which envisions criminal behaviors as indicators of underlying problems that can be treated. This approach also emphasizes the role of community in helping those accused of crimes, as well as the victims of crimes. So, back to Doug. Doug was super accommodating about our conversation, and we spent over an hour talking about all sorts of things. I'm glad we were able to meet this way, quote-unquote. And I hope the Georgia Justice Project's compassionate approach towards criminal justice will catch on across the South. Here's Doug Amar, Executive Director of the Georgia Justice Project. So I guess we should start from the beginning. What What's the purpose behind the Georgia Justice Project? So the purpose is basically to work with people in the criminal justice system to demonstrate a more holistic and a humane way of treating folks and having better outcomes of folks going through the criminal justice system. And also to not to represent there's always a chance for redemption for people, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are. And so I think what we do is try to live that out by the three elements of what we do and representing people on the front end of a criminal case and following them and their families into prison, you know, social workers working with our clients to the second part of representing folks on criminal uh, histories to help folks get a real second chance in life, even despite them having had a brush with the law. And thirdly is to, to remove these barriers that exist for people who have had a brush with the law. What kinds of services do you offer? Everybody who becomes a client, they were a legal client. We were their lawyer in some capacity. Oh, okay. 
what makes us really different is that is that it's not just legal work that keeps us connected. And so our social workers, you know, also work with clients from the very beginning of a case all the way through. And so the services we offer, obviously, are being a, somebody's lawyer, either on the on a criminal case, like a like a private public defender, but also on that on the criminal record side. And then our social services can go for many many years. Even this week, we have a client who just got out of prison after about ten years, mm-hmm. a young woman. But that, but the idea though is that um, you know we'll be there for her to help her get back on her feet, you know, as she readjusts to free society. One of the easiest ways of sort of visualizing or the material way of seeing this sort of continuum of care is we do, for instance, two big client events a year. Uh, one is a Saturday. We do a Christmas party for our clients and we do a, a back to school festival for our clients and their kids. And the idea is we invite anybody we ever served. So the idea is we're really trying to create community for our people. And so the idea of that continuum of care is our social service staff and all of us really, but the social service staff are the, the experts in it is to, is to be supportive as folks leave the criminal justice system and try to you know, rebuild their lives. So was it 25 years ago that you started? I know the organization is 25 years old. And the organization's 30, actually. 30, I'm sorry. It's 30 as of this coming year. Okay. So we were started in 86. I came on staff in 1990. So I've been here for 25 years. Okay. But I volunteered actually in 1986, right before I went to law school. So I've been connected for the, with the organization for a while. So in the work that you're doing now, did you have the same mission in mind when you went to law school? It was much broader. It wasn't the specific, certainly, in the, in the sense I felt you know, very much called to law school as a person of faith, as a Christian, to, to find a way of integrating my faith and, and what would be my practice as a lawyer and serving the poor. I, was, I even wrote that in my law school statement when I, oh. I um, and was you know, more shocked that people accepted me at uh, <laughs> the law school. But So, yeah, I had in mind of doing some kind of service work as a lawyer. Uh, and it's serving not just and it's serving poor people. I mean, it's serving people on the margins. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved with the Georgia Justice Project? Well, after graduating from college, I took a couple of years off. I went to a, a small undergrad liberal arts school that really was very intense. So I took a few years off, and I went. Uh, I moved to Birmingham. I took a job selling toothpaste for Procter and Gamble. Just a job. They, you know, it's fine. And um, and as I was heading back to law school, I applied and, and worked for two years. And a good friend of mine from college, and we became roommates in Birmingham. And he's a he's actually now a theologian, uh, but he uh, he invited me to come over with him here to Atlanta to help run uh, an urban ministry sort of plunge for a bunch of college kids who thought they wanted to do urban ministry. So he invited me to come to Atlanta, and um, all of us are going to the same church. And this one guy said, well, you're here. You're going to law school in a few months. Well, you should meet that guy over there. So he, he directed me to the founder of the organization who had just started. And that's how I got connected because of the church, because of my journey coming to Atlanta and working doing that urban ministry sort of thing and also going to this church. Okay. Now, in meeting the founder, like how did he – sort of impress upon you like the importance of that mission like what what was the selling point that made you think oh I, I could do this that's a good that's a good question so John who's still alive he, he left of course he was, he's in Alabama now actually your old pond yeah uh, he runs the Appleseed Foundation of Alabama and for him it was very much a, a you know sort of a personal mission for him I think you know anybody who met John 
uh, and still does. It, you know, the, he what, what he impresses you with is this incredible, earnest, grounded commitment. But in the summer, you know, I was getting ready to go back, go to school, heading up to Virginia, and and I sat with him and I said, "Well, John, this is this is great work." I said, "You know, but tell me, you know, what are you doing to change the system?" You know, I call this sort of you know white man's disease because white guys we think we run the world, and unfortunately we do too often. But you know, it's like my vision of doing service was to change the system, right? Then John, who's a white guy and who had who had been in power structures much more significant than I ever, uh, he said he didn't miss a beat. He said nothing. And I was caught off guard, and I said, what do you mean? I said, well, John, the, the criminal justice system is broken, isn't it? He says, yeah. I said, well, you know, there's terrible things that happen every day. He says, yeah, that's, that's right. I said, well, then why aren't you trying to change it? You know, like, he didn't miss a beat. He says, you know, I'm here to serve one person at a time, to do justice for that person, and then I go to the next person. And so when he told me that almost 30 years ago, I remember being really humble. And that he was that reflected to me his commitment. And this kind of person John was, he was just very focused and he didn't really care if other people noticed. He didn't care about, you know, accolades, he didn't care about press. But it was very humbling for me, who I the, I thought the point of getting a law degree in some part was to go change the world, not necessarily to work with one person at a time. I see. So what excites you about working with the Georgia Justice Project? Well, a lot of things. You know, being a lawyer, for instance, if you're a lawyer and you want to go help people and serve people, you know, often all you're really wearing is your hat as a lawyer. You know, I'm there to, to resolve the case and then take the next case. The idea of staying with somebody long past the case is over. The idea that I get to use my, my head, certainly, I get to be a lawyer. I get to think, and I like being a lawyer. I think it's fascinating. It's, it's really fun. I mean, really. But if I were just doing that, I don't think I'd be as excited. I just, you know, plugged in that tool every time I dealt with a client. But the beauty for me on one level is I get to work on both my head and my heart. And that, that the commitment to the client is as much about embracing that person, being with that person, being available for that person. You know, many, many years after the case, in fact, one of our guys, the guy who's playing Santa Claus is our, at our Christmas event this Saturday is a guy who I represented or met him in 1994. Wow. So to me, that allows my heart and my head to work in tandem that most lawyers who are even doing the best of work in the country and our communities don't get a chance to do. The other thing I would say in the last 10 years or so, you know, we've been focused on policy work uh, as well as direct service. A lot of people who are lawyers doing good work or lawyers doing policy work don't get to sort of have those two worlds intersect in their daily lives and their work lives. And, and to me, it's really, really critical that if, if we were ever going to reach out to do policy work, which we, again, started doing about 20 to 23 or four years into the organization's history, that we that it be connected and tethered to serving people. So, again, it's sort of this balance of using different tools as a person, but making a difference on lots of different levels uh, at the same time that makes it very exciting. I found out about your organization because I was reading about ban the box policies around the U.S., Somewhere I got the indication that your organization had helped to advocate for the executive order that came down in Georgia. Was it this year or last year? It was February of this year. February of this year. Okay. Well, first of all, can you explain what Ban the Box is? Sure. Ban the Box, and the phrase comes out of some advocates we know in, in the Bay Area in California and started about 10 or so years ago. The idea is that on a job application, if there's a box, which there often is, that asks, check this box if you've been convicted of a crime. Some of them will say, check this box if you've been arrested. If that box is on the application, 
and it's often on the first page of the application, the thought is, is that that candidate, that applicant, has a great likelihood of not being considered after that box is checked. And this is, we've seen this happen. I can, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you that that's, everybody knows who works in this field who's had, that it's absolutely true. So the idea of ban the box is not that an employer can't ever find out if the person has a record. And the idea is trying to, to hold off on answering that question until after the employer has screened a number of people. Then I run the background check because now as an employer, I have the context of knowing that Josh would be a great employee. He knows how to do this job. Yeah, but he was convicted of something when he was a kid. So I have a context to put it in as opposed to saying, I see Josh's first page and he checked the box on page one. I don't. I never get the chance to see what kind of experience he had. I don't know how old that conviction is. I don't know how old what the circumstances of what happened. I don't know that he has been clean and straight for 20 years. All I see is that box. So the idea is to create, in fact, we've renamed it in some ways. We try to call it, we try to get the legislature to buy into a, the, the phrase enhance the chance. Because it's not so much of stopping something. It's more about enhancing the opportunity, enhancing the chance for that candidate, that client, a person with a record to be considered for who they are. I like that. For the, the worst thing they ever did. Mm-hmm. And I guess the problem I've read, like I could be convicted for a crime at age 18 and then it's still affects my employment chances, you know, years down the line. Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. It's, it's pretty, I mean, it's, I mean, well, yes, I can, I can talk about that for quite a while. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. And to, and to talk about Georgia, I'm sitting in the biggest county in the state, Fulton County and Fulton County's job application had those boxes at the top, the very top of the question. I mean, not even, oh. you know, in fact, we, we pointed this out to the governor a couple of years ago, which led to him, you know, during the executive order. We asked the governor, we said, Governor, how far down the questions do you have to go before you're asked whether you have a conviction when you apply for a job in the state of Georgia? He had no idea. And we, of course, pulled it out and highlighted it. It was the fourth question. The fourth question said, after name and address and social security number, said, have you been convicted? And you know, once the governor got it, he got it quickly. In fact, I heard him speak at lawyers groups and faith groups around the state. He would talk about it before he signed the order. He would say, well, who's going to hire that? Who's even going to consider that candidate when they see that box? So we've seen so many people, so many of our clients, so many people, we work with thousands of people, obviously, by this point. And we've seen so many people who have, have been denied so many times jobs, they, they just decided to start lying and not checking the box and getting the job and working there for months, sometimes years, and being good people. And then they get called into the HR office and the, you know, the lawyers have told the employer, you've got to fire the person because of the record, but often they'll fire them because they lied on the application. Right. So it's, it's a real catch-22 for folks. And, and we're really glad that the, both the governor was willing to do this. You know, we're the first southern state to do it. And we actually, as you know, wrote the executive order for the state, and we wrote the, the orders and the, the policies for the county here as well. And we work with a number of other jurisdictions around the state as well. So what circumstances kind of facilitated that order was able to pass in 2015 when in the past it wasn't able to in Georgia? Criminal justice reform is at a fascinating stage in our society right now. How do you mean? We have been incarcerating people. Let me put it this way. I'll give you a real, real number. When I moved to Georgia in 1986, there were 8,000 people in the prison system. At its height a couple of years ago, the Georgia prison system had 57,000 people in prison. Wow. 
so this number uh, around the country, the most the statisticians, if you will, the uh, criminologists and sociologists will talk about anywhere from a 650 to 850 percent increase in incarceration from the mid 80s to today. So we've been on this road with building more prisons, incarcerating more people, and to give you a couple other data points that you should know in the context is that you know, America incarcerates more people per capita than any other country in the world. The South, where I'm living, incarcerates more of its population than either part of the country. In America, one in four people, about 70 million people, have a criminal record. In Georgia, it's one out of three, or a little bit over that, almost 40%. Almost 4 million people have a record in Georgia. Oh, my goodness. The percent of people with a record in this country is higher than those who are homeless, than those who are poor, than those who are veterans. I mean, it's a huge number of people. What's led to all this momentum for change is this place we've gotten to as a country. So the, the, the governor, the current governor, and he's won re-election a couple of years ago, his first inaugural address, he said, I'm going to change the way we do criminal justice. And he's a Republican, conservative. So what's happened is around the country is it's not just the liberals, if you will. Finally, I think a lot of people say that the recession, you know, a handful of years ago, got sort of the conservatives' attention and said, okay, budgets are shrinking everywhere. Well, what can we cut? What's this line item that's been escalating dramatically for 30 years? Prisons, jails, police. That was the first motivation for a lot of jurisdictions around the country to start changing the, the approach. We've been working pretty closely with the governor and and the mechanisms that he's put up in place. But the point is that wouldn't be happening. Nothing would be happening but for his commitment. And I do put his commitment in the context of a larger national conversation. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. How does this type of work affect you emotionally? I know the last time we talked on the phone, you had said that it was sort of a lonely field to be in for many years. And it seems like recently, like more and more people are kind of coming on board. How did you sort of persevere through those times? We certainly have lost cases in court. And as I mentioned, we continue to visit our people in prison. So, you know, the idea of, of visiting somebody in prison, not because we're their lawyer, and that's why the Department of Corrections lets us in, but we're there to just to check in on them, make sure they're doing okay, try to help them to get out through the parole process, et cetera. And a lot of lawyers have asked me, well, how can you do that? And that's, you know, it's very tough to lose a case. And it's especially tough to lose a case when you think somebody was innocent and they shouldn't have gone there. And those are the real hard ones. But I think, again, because I'm not just able to tap into my intellectual tools as a lawyer, but really tap into my emotional and spiritual side of my life, that is sort of a comfort in a way, right? Because it's not just about the dramaticness of the difficulty of the arrest process, the court process, and the prison process. It's about investing in the humanity and affirming the humanity of our clients at all these stages in a whole different way. I think that's kept me a lot from sort of being burned out, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's kept me kind of sane. And I would also say that, I mean, as I'm a person of faith and I feel very called to this work, as I mentioned. And so that keeps me very grounded in why I'm here. And the third, I would say, is, you know, another real reason why I'm in this work is because of how I grew up. I mean, I grew up very poor. I grew up with a single parent, my father, who was an, who was an alcoholic. He actually died of alcoholism. We bounced around a lot. So for me, doing this work is about connecting and healing and, and connecting with my own past. And so in that sense, it's not isolated. I mean, I might, I did and often felt isolated in the work. I don't want to deny what I said to you earlier, but there's a, there's a drive inside of me that's also about bringing some kind of healing, some kind of uh, hope for folks who are often excluded. And that is very, very personal for me. Gotcha. So I was reading on your website, 
that roughly 90% of people that are involved in the criminal justice system live below the poverty line. So I was hoping you could provide some context for why that is. Sure. It's, I hate to make it sort of an international conversation, but I had this conversation at least twice in the last day about, you know, terrorism and the, and the folks who are being induced by the jihadists, if you will, mm-hmm. join ISIS and people who have are living often in you know Western countries. Why are they so easily seduced and to do something to kill themselves and to kill others? And more and more, you know, the data I think suggests a similar pattern. That is, these are folks who are marginalized. They don't have the economic opportunities that others have, and they really are either desperate sometimes or certainly without a lot of hope. I think the same analogy overlaps into the criminal justice system. If you have hope for your life, then you're going to make a plan. You're, you're looking forward to the next thing, and therefore you're, you're making decisions in a different you're in a way that says, I don't want to jeopardize what I'm hoping to get to. Hope is at the center of this piece. So folks who are marginalized economically and you know, lose hope very quickly, they become disengaged, and therefore what's to lose? Well, and that what's to lose either by often becoming not necessarily resorting strictly to crime, because the other P, the other number that's even I think even more telling is that seventy five to eighty percent of all arrests in the country are related to drugs and alcohol. So what leads really? most, yeah, so what leads most folks into drug to crime isn't just okay I wanted something that I want to get it. It's a connection to drugs and alcohol. And so well, why does somebody, whatever age they are, turn to that? You know, especially if you're poor, it's because you don't have hope. You don't have no, you don't have a, a sense of your own future. That reminds me of a quote I read a few years ago, and I'm paraphrasing, but it goes something like, "The opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice." <laughs> nice, nice. And that's always <laughs> stuck with me when I've been reading about issues like this, especially with restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I did want to ask. I know there are plenty of opponents to restorative justice practices. Are there risks involved with the restorative justice approach? Speaking of quotes, one quote that I love, and let me just break this into two general buckets, first of all. The criminal justice system is easily divided into two, well, maybe three buckets, what people call front end and back end, meaning getting arrested and charged, going through the court process and getting sentenced or determined guilt or innocence by a judge and or sentenced by a judge, et cetera. That's the front end. Okay. And then there's possibly prison, but anything after that is back end, right? So there's a great quote that I love. I, I do a lot of talks using uh, the Les Miserables, not the Les Mis, I said Les Mis, but Les Miserables, not the musical version. That was a book that had a huge impact on me as a kid. And there's a great quote that Jean Valjean says, as he's, and you know the story, I'm sure, that he's sitting at the table with the bishop, you know, says he's, he just got out of prison and he's having the meal when he, when he spends the night. And the bishop's asking him, well, where are you going to go? And he holds up his, you know, ID. He says, well, they told me to go to Dijon because that's where I'm supposed to go. And he said, I'm supposed to go get a job. I'm supposed to get, I'm supposed to get a place to stay. He said, who's going to hire me? And he says, this is the quote. He says, now the real punishment begins. Uh, and the idea that we often talk about, I often don't even like to use second chances. I call it double punishment because what we're really talking about on the back end of this equation of a restorative approach is are we going to continue to punish somebody forever? And getting people to ask that question to me opens up the conversation because it's not just about what happens on the front end. It's not just about diverting somebody from a conviction or diverting them from prison. It's now on the back end. And you start asking it that way. 
then most people will say, well, yeah, we don't want to punish people forever. And then you start asking, well, what are we punishing them for? And the vast majority of crimes and people in prison are there for nonviolent offenses. And that even gets more more thinking, well, do we really want to, what are we using the punishment side for? And there's another great expression that's come out of the Texas right on crime movement. And it says, are, are we putting people in prison or jail, meaning the punishment side? Are we putting them, are we punishing them because we're afraid of them or because we're mad at them? And what's happened is prison for a long time, even biblically, was used for people we're afraid of. Like these are people who are going to do harm and we're worried about them. We have shifted in the last 30 years to use the, the punishment side of the criminal justice system for people we are angry with, who did not really necessarily pose a significant threat to society. So when you ask those questions, I think a restorative thing opens, that restorative opportunity is more easy to embrace. Because I think to the point of people who are not bought into a restorative approach or who might oppose it or the risk involved, if you will, they are more focused on just punishment, punishment, punishment. So I often ask, well, when does the punishment stop? Or Jean Valjean says, after 19 years in prison, and it's amazing, right? The book was written 150 years ago, and he, and he nailed it. You know, mm-hmm. nailed it to where we are today in America. This right. is now the real punishment begins. Yeah. So are there people opposed to that? Yes, there are people. But are there risks? That's, now, that's a whole other question. There's some fascinating folks up at CUNY Albany who've been studying what is the risk of somebody who is convicted of something and their tendency to recommit a crime. There's, if people are going to are going to are prone to do that, or in a circumstance are going to do crime, there's actually a window when they're probably going to do it. I mean, and there's a window when they usually stop. And what's even more fascinating is there is a window after somebody stops and they reach a certain age. Is once you're two, three, five, six, eight years out of committing a crime, meaning if the average population, you you basically you as a, somebody who's committed a crime in the past, start to blend in with the rest of the population on your propensity to commit another crime. So those data points really start to suggest that, that the real risk is very minimal, especially five to seven years after certain offenses. And these are often even violent offenses. Is if somebody can do right and not if they they might have done something wrong, but their their ability, their, their propensity to do something wrong again diminishes greatly over time based on their age and based on what they've done. So at least I'm already, I'm giving you the argument for why someone shouldn't continue to, to punish or why there's less and less risk. One other thing I would say, again, back to this 75% of arrests involved with drugs and alcohol, is that what has been good around the country is a movement to drug courts, and here in Georgia they call them accountability courts. And there it's a recognition, just like mental health courts, is that the reason somebody broke the law, the reason somebody did something wrong by you know, societal standards, is they had a problem. And until that problem is a Addressed, there's a good likelihood they might continue it. So the risk for somebody continuing to do wrong, and I, you know, using quote, you know, quote unquote wrong, sure. is often based on some other medical, physiological, psychological issue that often can be dealt with. So that diminishes the risk of somebody perpetuating more crime. And thank God that so many places around the country now are taking on that approach. So I, I think those are ways of reducing the risk and those are ways of addressing the concerns when somebody says, well, I'm really all about punishment all day long, every day. Uh, I think there's, there's real concrete answers that could assuage their concern. How can we keep this momentum rolling of kind of reassessing the criminal justice system to be more compassionate and restorative? Hmm. I mean, we both come from the South and we both know that there's a lot of opposition morally to alternatives like ban the box and those kinds of things. So I'm just wondering, do you have any experience with convincing people not to punish former criminals forever? 
So a couple of thoughts come up to me, and I think okay. about this. I think about this a lot. Okay. First thought is about narcissism, and that our culture has become so narcissistic in so many ways. I mean, the expectation today is to do something, react to something, whatever something, give to something philanthropically mm-hmm. if it's connected to me, if it will help my life. That concerns me, but it's a fact. Now, you layer that in with the fact that America incarcerates more people than it's ever incarcerated than any other country in the world, that we have 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the incarcerated population. That's an amazing data point. Right. That means that the more and more people, regular people, have bumped into the system. And the reason I couple these two is I would love for us to be a society where we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That I don't have to make an argument to somebody to say, you know, you should do this because it will cut down on your taxes. You should do this because it's happened to you or you should, you know, or hasn't this happened to you or somebody in your family? Yeah, it has. You want to change it, don't you? But too often today we, we make decisions because it's in our best interest to do them. Again, I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming our culture. It's been harder and harder to identify with the other, to be compassionate for the other, for its own inherent reasons, right? I say all that, too. I want to add this point is that we haven't talked about race. First of all, you know the numbers on race is that the the criminal justice system disproportionately uh, affects uh, folk of color, particularly men of color. Right. So my concern in coupling these two different pieces together is this, is that once we, and I say we as a, as a white middle class culture, those in power feel that the system has backed off enough, that we aren't incarcerating our friends, that they aren't, it isn't touching my cousins and my, you know, the people I know, that we will go back to saying, well, yeah, go incarcerate them, incarcerate the other because they aren't us. And unfortunately in this country, and especially in the South, that will lead to incarcerating more men of color, more people of color. So I think the racial component to the criminal justice system has to be talked about. At the end of the day, what we've got to be committed to is justice and fairness for everybody. And the beautiful thing, whether it's the civil rights movement or whether it's the Declaration of Independence, is that that's something we all believe in. That is one of our biggest hopes in emerging out of this, that it's not just about what happened to me or my friend down the street or my cousin in Topeka, Kansas. It's about what affects everybody. So I think this racial element of the criminal justice system, it's an opportunity right now to challenge our narcissistic leanings. If we can continue being critical as a country to look at what happens in the criminal justice system, I think that will hearken to our deepest and highest callings as humans to be fair and to be just uh, and not just to reduce the cost of incarceration. Right. I agree with that. So where can we follow the Georgia Justice Project online? So our website is real easy. It's gjp.org. We do have a Facebook page, which some of our staff younger than I keep up, and we try to post things that are happening. We do have a, a Twitter feed, which we're not as um, – I think we do still use it some. We have a mailing list of about 10,000 people that we regularly send out mailings electronically. The other thing I'll add, too, the other way to maybe be involved or to follow is we helped start another group that's um, a, a loose coalition of about – 14 states, as many as 50 organizations that have been involved, called the New Southern Strategy Coalition. And we, the uh, newsouthernstrategy.org is, is, is that website. And the idea there is to try to link up learnings from groups in the South who are working on criminal justice issues, primarily collateral consequence issues, issues that affect you once you've been through the system. That is a good way of seeing not only what's happening in Georgia, certainly, but our, some of our partners around the southern states. There's a lot of powerful momentum happening, and, and we're really honored and glad to be part of it. I feel enriched having talked to you. Like You seem like a really nice guy. I really appreciate your time. 
My pleasure. Josh, thanks for what you're doing. I really appreciate what you're doing. It's wonderful. You're trying to lift up positive stories and people around the country. That's wonderful. Yeah. Not, not to be gleefully optimistic, just less pessimistic. There you go. I've taken enough of your time, Doug. I appreciate it. Josh, thank you so much, man. This has been The Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care.